Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. We've told the full tale of how the BBC came into being. We started with Hertz and Marconi. We sailed with Reginald Fessenden and his first entertainment show. We crossed the Atlantic with the voice of Bill Ditcham and travelled with him and Captain Round to Chelmsford, where they read railway timetables, introduced news, then music to the airwaves, and launched Dame Nellie Melba to the world 100 years before our Melba episode. We heard how radio was too successful in Britain, so was banned, but came back under a wild, rebellious broadcasting boffin, Captain Peter Eckersley. His rivalry with Marconi publicity boss Arthur Burroughs sparked two radio stations into being in London and Essex and it grew from there dozens of radio stations wanting in until the government decided on one British Broadcasting Company this time everything we missed out well some things we missed out especially who gave the first radio entertainment show in Britain some clarifications on the first broadcast comedian, and who were the first four BBC employees, and why that's actually a trickier question than it may seem. All of that, plus an exclusive interview with TV presenter famed for his children's and science shows, and the podcaster behind Gareth Jones on Speed, it's Gareth Jones, or as I first encountered him on the telly, Gaz Top. I didn't even know how to introduce him. I'm going to call him Gareth Jones. Oh, that's a pretty good start. That's good always start. been my name. There was a, a period in my life where uh, other people called me Gaz Top. It was them who gave me the name. It's actually uh, Mike Peters from The Alarm, the band I used to roadie for, who gave me the nickname Gareth Top, and uh, and it kind of stuck. I had to steeg back to Gareth Jones via <laughs> Gareth Gareth Top Jones. Nice. That's all to come here on the last episode of season one of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London College. So hello, hello. Happy New Era. I hope you're doing okay in all of this life, the universe and everything. As I record this, it's lockdown three. This time it's personal and a little tiring. Uh, this podcast started actually in lockdown one, which was uh, in 2020 springtime. And now we're in lockdown three. Here we are. So I'm currently recording this with two different classrooms on in my home at the same time. My wife is working at the hospital and I am busy doing creative things. Lots of things to do with the BBC, as well as here talking to you about the history of the old BBC. Uh, I'm writing a CBBC episode of a sitcom called Andy and the Band. I'm enjoying a BBC One sitcom that I've helped write, the currently ironically named Not Going Out. I've been doing a bit of Radio 4, the Sunday programme for them, and some Radio 2 pause for thoughts on the way as well. So plenty of real life beebness. While here, we delve into how we got to this point. So the most recent episode here was the Christmas episode, our Christmas special. But really, in the big story of the Beeb, we've largely stopped at day two. That's mid-November 1922. And we're about to have a break before uh, season two of this podcast. That's where we're going to delve into the first year of the BBC's being. Between season one and season two, I've got a few specials lined up. But before the specials start, I wanted to spin back on this episode and clarify, correct, fill in a few gaps as well. For example, here's a very quick one. Cindy Kent said a couple of episodes ago... This was like, oh, Radio 1, wow. ...that in 1967, as Radio 1 started, she was there... Roger Moffat, a wonderful guy. Well, there we end broadcasting in the light programme, not just for today, but uh, as it seems forever. He was reading the weather forecast. 
and somebody set fire to the bottom of the script and he's reading it down some idiot decided to set fire because we all smoked in the studio in those days she has since been in touch to clarify it was not the weather report it was the shipping forecast so happy to clear that up this message will self-destruct if cindy kent is anywhere near it the light program as it's known now is closing down more clarifications and corrections coming up first though a few parish notices. Firstly, we now have a Facebook group. Until now, we've had a Facebook page, which sounds rather similar to a group, really, but the nice thing about a group is we can all kind of share equally. So it's a great place to join, and you can post pictures, you can post things that you've discovered about broadcasting history to share and be part of this community. Do find the British Broadcasting Century group and find us on Facebook. Here's a nice thing I read as well. Radio Caroline has finally broadcast the Queen's Christmas message after being turned down for it 56 years ago. On the 1st of December 1964, Radio Caroline publicity officer David Block contacted the BBC asking for a copy of the Queen's Christmas message. But they were a pirate station, of course, Radio Caroline. So he was told no and to ask again even when there was evidence of credentials as representative of an authorised broadcaster, their words. As you may know, three years ago, Radio Caroline was finally authorised as a broadcaster. So now they've reapplied, as they were asked to over half a century ago, and they were granted permission, finally, to broadcast the Royal Christmas message. God bless you, ma'am. Am I referring to the Queen or Radio Caroline? You decide. Lastly, it's not quite broadcasting as such, but a recommendation I wanted to give you. Uh, the latest Behind the Spine podcast with Mark Hayward. He's digging into stories and storytelling, how we tell them, why we tell them, how we can tell them better, whether we're writers or, or creatives or whatever it might be. Their recent episode on movie archives is well worth a listen. And I thought as listeners to this podcast, you might enjoy it. It ties into what we're talking about here. It's the overlap between history, entertainment and technology. A fascinating interview with the archivists at Paramount and Zoetrope, that's Francis Ford Coppola's company. And on that podcast episode, they're zooming in on how The Godfather Part 3 is now being transformed and given new life, thanks to archive and old tech, a bit of love and a good old story. Now, the link to that episode's in the show notes. That episode is Season 2, Episode 6 of Behind the Spine podcast. I do know that we have a few archivists who listen, so a shout out to you, knee-deep in your many archives. Where did Noah keep his bees? In the archives. That's right, etc. So the plan from here, specials, that's what we've got coming up next few episodes on the British Broadcasting Century. The idea is that gives me time to A, uh, write up the novel based on all this that I'm trying to do, B, write up the TV drama script based on all this that I'm also trying to do to pitch around, and C, research 1923 for the next season of this podcast. I do know a lot already about 1923, that first year of the BBC's existence, but I've got a good 20 to 30 broadcasting history books to read before I dare presume to bring you season two. I want to get it exactly right. I want to cover that first year of the Beeb, and I want to avoid an episode like this, the loose ends episode where I've got to tie up things, clarify things, and go over things that I've just discovered at the end of it all. So in these specials between season one and season two, we've got a couple of episodes that give you a whole load more about Captain Round and Percy Edgar. Now, these are two pioneers we've mentioned before on the podcast. The first special should be arriving February 2021, and those specials should get us to Easter. So season two should kick in around late spring, let's say. Right then, to business. <laughs> 
So let's begin this episode of Clarifications with the first radio entertainment broadcast in this country. We know that Reginald Fessenden did globally the first radio entertainment broadcast, 1906, an impromptu Christmas broadcast for ships, very brief, rather primitive, but with a song or two and a reading, so it was entertainment and it was broadcasting. But what of the first British radio entertainment broadcast? Well, we don't have to wait for Eckersley in 1920. A year after Fessenden, 1907, Lieutenant Quentin Crawford of the good ship Andromeda in Chatham Harbour reckoned that he could modify the magnetic detector that sent and received dots and dashes. With the Admiralty's permission, he gave it a go, and there was a short concert of voice from on board the Andromeda. Other ships nearby did manage to hear him sing. Crawford sang God Save the King, then ruled Britannia, then Trafalgar Day. It's like last night the proms, isn't it? Well, first night, very much the first night of anything. Then on the Mississippi shore, there is a tavern in the town. And a few more songs. Three blind mice. Lieutenant Crawford did say later... The Admiralty didn't want the general public to know of the invention. I was not allowed to say a word about it. They thought it could be adapted with great profit for use in submarines. That's all according to Leslie Bailey in his BBC scrapbook. That's adapted from the old radio show of the same name. And hey, in the same book, in fact, Leslie Bailey shines a light on another early pioneer. In fact, a pioneering couple that we either glossed over or didn't mention at all back in episode one. I can't remember. So this is 1917. And it's another military officer, Captain Donisthorpe and Mrs. Donisthorpe, his wife, coincidentally, with the same name. My first broadcast was from a bell tent in a field near Worcester. My part in this experiment was strictly unofficial. Perhaps Mrs. Donisthorpe was the first female broadcaster. Yes, she slightly humoured her husband with his wacky ideas about shouting into a box. So Leslie Bailey's scrapbook for 1917 show, she said, I sat on a sugar box in front of a transmitter, which would now be considered a museum piece. It had a bath of oil for cooling the one and only valve. At first, we simply had conversations between two stations about a mile apart. If I heard nothing, I would take my push bike and pedal to the other station, where I would often find that my husband had gone on his bike to my base by a different route. Still, we did quite often make contact over the wireless, and I suppose my husband got quite a lot of technical knowledge from these experiments. Later, we broadcast gramophone records and recitations to amuse the troops at training centres at Mulvern and Droitwich. That was also strictly unofficial. During the war, Captain Donisthorpe was in France using the first British Army valve receiver. The march from crystal sets to the bright future of valve radio broadcasting had begun. For the next stage of Broadcasting History's story, you can see episodes 1 to 15 of this podcast. And then for episode 16, our first broadcast comedian, well, we'll pick that up in a moment. First, this week's guest... Flashing forward several decades to the late 20th century, we meet a broadcaster that I grew up watching on Saturday morning kids' TV show, Get Fresh and How To. This is a man who has, in his blood, broadcasting and science and where they both meet. Gareth Jones. I was brought up in North Wales and uh, a big part of Welsh culture is this thing called the Esteddfod, which is a sort of a national singing, dancing, reciting 
poetry competition where everyone is expected to perform. You know, you just are. Everyone performs. It's completely normal. It's an essential part of Welsh culture. So I've, I've always been, you know, uh, capable of standing up and uh, telling a story, reciting a poem, singing a song, as everybody in Wales is. You look at the uh, inordinate number of uh, Welsh people who are in the media, it's because of the Estefot. So I had that as my initial start. Then I went into youth theatre, and that sort of bolstered my performance credentials. I had a dad who was a, uh, an engineer, an electronics engineer, so he filled me full of love and understanding for technology. My family rode the wave of the transistor, basically, the invention of the transistor, the transition from valves to transistors. Suddenly, portable radios and televisions became much more affordable, and so, you know, that, that, that was the, uh, the, the technology boom that led to a revenue stream that dragged my family from being a working class family to being a middle class family in the 1960s. We had the first color TV in our street because dad sold them. So in the 60s, well, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, dad would bring a color TV home from the shop for, to borrow for the weekend. And everyone on our street would come and watch the color TV in our house. I remember mm. a uh, football match of the FA Cup final being uh, rerun on a midweek thing. And our house was full of people watching, I think, Chelsea and Leeds play in color <laughs> in our house. And of course, the reason I watched the moon landing live was we mm. had a TV, you know, in, in the late 60s. And it was uh, an essential, the TV was always on. In fact, in our house, um, my sister came here to visit me a few years ago and walked in. She said to me, is there a reason the television's off? And I, <laughs> I, I found that, I, I hadn't thought like that, but the TV was always on. Yeah. My uh, parents' house, uh, they still to this day, they'll have generally like BBC One on in one room, yeah. then a different TV in the other room has got ITV on, and maybe yeah. a third in the kitchen's got two or, or, or channel four. And if you want to switch channels, you don't change your remote, you just go to a different go, room. To another room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and that's not weird. That's pretty much how I lived my mm. life throughout the, sort of the 80s and the 90s, and it changed when the kids turned up. Yeah, I mean, that that isn't weird to me. Yeah, That's yeah. the culture I grew up in. And then rock and roll happened. You know, Slade mm. in 1972, punk rock in 1976. And I, I formed a, a band with some mates, started gigging in North Wales, supporting other bands, and the other bands are better than us. And then one day, one of those other bands said, will you come and be a roadie for me? So I ended up being a roadie for the other bands because I was good with technology. Toured the world with that band, The Alarm, for five years. A pal of mine, he'd applied for a job with a new satellite and cable music channel called Music Box, who were like MTV, and they were looking for presenters. And he said, you, know, you should do this. I mean, this guy, Pete Picton, was in New Theatre with me. He was the guy who said, come, let's go join New Theatre. And uh, he was also in my band with me. So he's been a massive influence on me. And Pete said... Um, go for this job and he wrote a phone number down on the back of a pack of Benson and Hedges yeah. and uh, I, when I was in London one day I set up the band uh, in rehearsals phoned this number and said oh I believe you're looking for television presenters who know about music and they said yeah come down for an interview so literally that day and I do mean literally that day I went did an interview walked into an office full of girls 
uh, thought, I, I, I was young and single at the time. I, I quite like this. So I put my feet up on the desk wearing cowboy boots. I remember this well. I said, I like it here. I'd like to come and work here. And she said, well, let's find out if you can, said Jane Kelly, the woman interviewing me. And she gave me an opportunity for a screen test, which I passed. And three days later, I had my own TV program presenting wow. music videos on uh, Music Box. It, so I went from zero to hero in about three or four days. Ridiculous. So that's how I started in television. It's a fast turnover, isn't it? When it happens, it happens. Yeah. You're in. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's amazing. It was mm. never my plan. I set out to be either the first Welshman on the moon, and I'm <laughs> absolutely serious about this, or the bass player in Slade. Those are the two things, Paul, I wanted to be. There's time um, yet. There's time yet for the moon yeah. stuff, certainly. It could happen. Uh, and Slade as well. You know, why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More from Gareth soon. Meanwhile, in the past, while we're talking fun and funny and entertainment, where did it all start? Well, avid listeners to this podcast will recall episode 16. We looked at the first comedian of British broadcasting, who we claimed Hello, was Helena Millay. Here I am again with my old string bag. Now, Alan Stafford guided us through some of Radio Comedy's earliest moments, but he's been in touch again on the email, paul at paulcarenza.com. You're welcome to drop me a line there. But Alan clarified that it's not quite as simple as we'd hoped, because it seems to depend on what you mean by broadcast and what you mean by comedian. So let's get geeky. Are you ready? Okay. Helena Millay graced the airwaves in London a few days before the BBC launched. So she was on in October 1922. But go back a few months to July 29th. You get not just a comedian, but a superstar comedian, Will Hay. You may know his films, but he was a stage star too, of course. So on that date, like a guest on The One Show, Will Hay was plugging his latest West End show with, at 6pm, a 30-minute condensed forecast, in other words, a preview, live on 2LO at Marconi House. What makes this all the more worthy of mention is that Will Hay's play for the stage was called Listening In. So this is a West End play that's all about this broadcasting craze. A musical burlesque in 15 radio calls. Two other versions of the programme actually say 21 radio calls, then 17. In other words, the scenes were gradually cut, as the show clearly wasn't working. The review's run lasted through August 1922 in the West End, three months after 2LO started, three months before the BBC started. Opening night was postponed twice due to technical difficulties because it did include real live telephony, those experimental broadcasts that Arthur Burroughs and 2LO were doing at the time were actually being used in this stage show. The programme does mention that Kit was kindly lent by Marconi's. Will Hay played Professor Broadcaster, demonstrating radiography, as he called it, to the press. And the gag throughout was that he couldn't get it to work. Lots of on-stage fiddling of buttons. There was a giant aerial on stage emitting random sparks of fire, flames over two feet long, before at the end the apparatus explodes and Professor Broadcaster, played by Will Hay, is blown to bits. Arthur Burroughs had had similar but not so fatal problems, including tech failing in front of the world's press. You could see episode five of the podcast for details of that. The Marconi company hated Will Hay's show. They partnered to advertise their product, not imply that it could explode. The wireless folks did still have a PR battle to win. The press hated the stage show as well. Apparently, the constant telephony attempts throughout just ruined the flow of the stage show. It closed early. The show was a review, so you know it's a series of sketches, and in fact one of them is still viewable online for free 
in silent film form. No good for audio, so we won't include it here, but we'll put the link in the show notes. It's well worth a look. It looks like the excerpt of the stage show they did for 2LO on the wireless included hardly any of the broadcasting parodies. Perhaps they didn't want to bite the hand that fed them. Instead, Will Hay adopted his schoolmaster routine, and then he duetted with Miss Melita Dolores in a song called Boy and Girl with Herman Derevsky on piano. So it's a no-brainer then, right? Will Hay surely counts as the first broadcast comedian, you know, that we know of anyway. Well, maybe not, because avid listeners might remember that Tuolo was one of three stations at the time, and London especially was experimental. So that Will Hay broadcast was actually purely intended for the monotype athletic club Garden Fate in Hawley. So what does that mean? It means that the Will Hay broadcast, possibly the first comedian on the wireless, wasn't being broadcast broadly. It wasn't intended for a wide audience. It was, I don't know, do we call it narrow casting? Wireless telephony experimentation? It had a small intended audience. A garden fate in Hawley. That was it. But others could listen in, of course. Bear in mind that listeners at this point were called just that. Listeners in. So Helena Millay may still take the crown, I think, as first broadcast comedian, because Will Hay was aimed purely at a village fate. But a few months after Will Hay, a month before Helena Millay, September 22nd, 1922, yes, apparently a two-month gap of no-booked comedians, humorist Wilfred Lydiat is on, hmm, don't know him myself, reading The Vicar's Presentation. And then September 28th, a week later, it's music hall performer Peggy Ray singing a few songs, Peggy's son would go on to be one of BBC Radio Comedy's brightest stars in The Goon Show. Peggy Ray was mum to Peter Sellers. We mentioned in episode 14 that the first all-British wireless exhibition and convention, Fab Week, that saw Charles Corrie appear on September the 30th, William Parkin and Herbert Dickerson on October the 2nd. All musical humorists, all, alas, largely forgotten by history. Well, since that episode of this podcast, comedy historian Alan Stafford has been in touch again. He's done some more digging for us. Charles Corrie, it turns out, did parody songs at the piano. Uh, he also appeared on the BBC in a concert with Helen Marr, an American storyteller. Uh, that was in the first week of the BBC, later that year. More of that next season. And apparently Charles Corrie, especially in his novel adaptation of songs to advertising purposes, won much appreciation from the audience. According to the Western Morning News, also at that October radio exhibition, you could hear William Parkin, who was also an organist. He didn't so much do songs as musical impressions of everyday life, so said the Buckinghamshire Examiner. One of his most humorous items was his original musical wedding in which he composed an excellent little song by utilising lines from other popular numbers, according to the Beds and Hearts pictorial. And Mr Dickerson from Exeter, he did character songs, probably unaccompanied, including clever character studies of a Somerset farmer, according to the Western Morning News. So Mr Corrie, Mr Parkin, Mr Dickerson, broadcast comedians earlier than Helena Millay, yes, but again, experimental. It was all still a demonstration, arguably, rather than aimed at the public, yet. And also, Helena Millay's act was in a studio aimed at an audience at home, Corey Parkin and Dickerson seem to have had a live audience there, like watching Live at the Apollo, where the home audience is secondary. The comedian is instead playing to the gallery. And also, they're all musical comedians. You know, it's not, dare I say, pure stand-up. And I say that myself as a stand-up who's trying to be a pure stand-up. Here's another one as well. Ernie Main, a.k.a. The Simple One. On October the 11th, 1922, he sang an original comedy song 
Wireless on the Brain. This recorded version is from 1923, but his original, again, wasn't aimed at a wide listenership, broadcast for a private audience. In this case, it was the Girls' Friendly Society Fate. Oh, hello. Like Will Hayes' routine, this song is rather sniffy about wireless. Burroughs, the publicist, had a job on his hands convincing listeners that wireless was a good thing. The whole song has Ernie scolding Marconi for occupying his wife so much that she's taken her mind off cooking his dinner an early indicator that women were tuning in a good deal more than perhaps was to be expected. Female listenership to the early BBC was huge. And could this be the earliest publicly available recording of the word broadcasting? We think so. Of course, Ernie Main had a reason to be sceptical about the wireless. As a stage star, would wireless radio be the death of music hall? Yes, I'm afraid so, Ernie. You were right to be concerned. And trust me, I'm recording this while my kids are both using Wi-Fi to access their school classrooms right now. So here, everything is wireless in our house. wireless in our house. Our wireless dog keeps barking outside on his wireless chain. And upstairs in the attic, they've had wireless twins again. Whoa, my wife, Jane, she's got wireless on the brain. So I'm still plumping for Helena Millay as our first broadcast comedian. Why? Well, her act, like Ernie's, was written specially for radio. Ernie was musical, Helena was too, just wasn't musical. And it was for a proper broadcast public. So I think Helena Millay, as our Lizzie, deserves a place in the history books. But then again, they all do. So long, that. Be good. And if you can't, Mind no one sees you. As for the first entertainer on the BBC, Billy Beer, we will get to him next season when we look at the first year of the BBC's being. So that's British Broadcasting's first comedian, nearly not quite taken care of. Let's go bang up to date with Gareth Jones. Children's television picked me out. I never set out to find children's television. What happened was when I was on Music Box, which was a pan-European satellite music channel, Janet Street Porter, a great television presenter and producer of the 80s and the 70s, she tracked me down because I got a message at Music Box one day. Oh, can you go and see Janet Street Porter? She's casting for a new Saturday morning children's program. What? Wait. Yeah. Wow. Really out of the blue. The show was, turned out to be Get Fresh. And that was it. I was sent off to uh, Newcastle with eight other people. And uh, I got chosen for Get Fresh. Yay. And became a Saturday morning TV presenter. Not because I knew about music, I knew about television. I think I got it because I used to be a roadie. And roadies have this brilliant, the show must go on attitude. You know, you, you arrive in a town at four o'clock in the afternoon, the band are on stage at what, nine o'clock at night, you've got 
five hours to make everything work. And even if th- things aren't working, you make them work. You know, I've built drum risers out of old ashtrays when there wasn't a drum riser. You know, I've made cables up by wiring short cables together so we could do this gig. And a TV presenter of a live show, and this gig that I got, Get Fresh, was a live Saturday morning show, required that kind of the show must go on attitude. And I think that was my qualification for getting Get Fresh. Get Fresh exploded. We had something like six million viewers on a Saturday morning. It was massive, but there wasn't much in the way of uh, rivalry in those days. There were only a few cable and satellite channels, so it was a very different environment. And that, that was, uh, from memory, that was all over the country as well, wasn't it? You would That's be right, on yeah. different locations each week. Uh, Not only a different location, but an entirely different ITV company making the show every week. We, it was, it was organised by Tyne Tees Television, who had a central unit in London, a sort of a, a core unit. Uh, so there would be a producer, a talent booker, a couple of researchers and the presenters. And then we would travel to a location, let's say uh, Carlisle. And this week, we arrive on the Thursday and it would be Border Television's turn to make our programme. So they turn up with their own OB unit. Uh, they'd have the spaceship the the millennium dustbin this portable studio that was delivered it was basically a a 40-foot articulated lorry trailer um you'd have to assemble it kind of like a transformer all the bits on the inside would be taken out and put on the outside to make it look like a a truck and they'd have to follow instructions on how to do this and it was very difficult you know it was only just made it by saturday morning and then next week it would be i don't know TSW's turn to make it or Scottish or Grampian or Ulster or HTV West or HTV Wales or TVS or TSW, you know, we Anglia, we went around all the little companies, none of the big five. So it wasn't Granada. It wasn't London weekend. It wasn't Thames. It wasn't central and it wasn't Yorkshire television, the big five mm. in those days. It was all the little regions who clubbed together to pitch for the Saturday morning uh-huh. franchise because the big five, either couldn't do it didn't want to do it i'd failed to do it successfully in the past there'd been a number of failed saturday morning shows before get fresh emerged i think the most famous of which was the mersey pirate which was made by uh granada television in liverpool presented by um billy butler mbe ah, yes Butler's eldest yeah. and there were other shows like the saturday banana and none of these had really done well and they'd all Oh, we can't make Saturday morning television. So they, they gave up and said to the little regionals, do you want to have a go? So they said, well, let's make something that we can all have a go at doing and sharing it between us. So it's kind of an almost neo-communist, semi-socialist uh, conglomerate of people making Get Fresh, which was fantastic. It was a joy to be involved. Gareth Jones on the different ITV companies that made one show. A far cry from the early radio that started British broadcasting. But I think it's worth remembering that the British broadcasting story does not stop at the BBC. We will get to ITV and commercial TV and commercial radio and pirate radio. And I don't know if we'll get as far as Netflix. That'll be a thousand episodes time yet. But for now, I thought it'd be nice to have Gareth on this episode, a 21st century broadcaster born out of ITV in the regions, alongside those BBC and radiophonic origins. It's all just ancestors and descendants. 
That sounds a mix of, I don't know about anarchic as such, but yeah, anti, anti something. It's anti um, the mainstream in a way, isn't it? It was. Just, yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It was, we'll do our thing. We don't care what we, you know, we, we haven't been given a brief. We've been given an opportunity. The best thing that ever happened to me on Get Fresh was Gilbert the Alien, who joined us on yes. the second season. We had a new producer, Mike Forte, and he said to me, what should we do? I said, well, it's a, it, it's a spaceship. We should have an alien on board. Oh, yeah, let's have an alien, he said. So he commissioned Fluck and Law, the people who mm. made the puppets for Spitting Image, to build a puppet, classic children's TV cost cutting. This puppet was made of used spare bits of other <laughs> puppet molds in Spitting Image. Wow. The, the lips, Gilbert's lips were Ringo Starr. Do you remember that the body was a, a germ? They created a germ, uh, a kind of a virus, but th that was Janet Street Porter. That was how they, they did Janet Street Porter, a spitting image. And it was a tremendous irony that it was this same body became the body of Gilbert for Get Fresh, a series produced by Janet Street Porter. Absolutely intentionally. Fluck and Law knew what they were doing. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so Gilbert was a bitter, an amalgam of bits. And his personality grew out of the performance that uh, Phil Cornwell did as Gilbert's voice. Gilbert was two people. There was a puppeteer and a separate voice artist. And that's what gave Gilbert this kind of out of control, split personality kind of essence, I suppose. I imagine that uh, a show like that must have been as as full on as broadcasting sort of gets, you know, as opposed to in a studio and so on. It was it was it fun or was it mad or was it somewhat? Did you not have a time to stop and think whether it was fun or mad? All three of those things. Mm. It was really intense. We'd arrive Thursday afternoon. We'd walk around this enormous location setting. We'd be struggling with little ITV companies trying to make the technology work. Some of them didn't even have an outside broadcast scanner. Some had a porter cabin and two two-inch VT machines that they'd brought from their edit suites. And uh, sorry, not two-inch, one-inch. That was an exaggeration. You know, not even beta cam. These are one-inch reel-to-reel tape machines. And we had talkback systems which barely ever worked. We had you know receivers radio receivers the size of a flipping suitcase i'm looking for something around me a shoebox that i would have strapped to my back you know because they didn't have little micron radio transmitter receivers and they would break up all the time i we could never work out whether i could have switch talk back or open talk back so i just had open talk back this constant conversation in my ear of four people constantly whilst I was broadcasting and Gilbert in the other ear and trying to make sense of what I'm saying. So it was chaos from the Thursday. And then we went live, uh, you know, we had a long day's rehearsals on Friday with half the guests never managing to get there. So you'd have to imagine what might happen. You go live Saturday morning. Of course it was raining. Of course, two of the five cameras had broken down. It was make it up as you go along a lot of the time. You watch back any episodes of Get Fresh and they're, there are some episodes available on uh, YouTube and my website is I've actually got the entire last episode ever of Get Fresh, August wow. 1988. You can watch that on my website. You look, things break down even on the last show. It's raining even on the last show. It's chaos. And that was the joy of it. It was like rock and roll for me. It wasn't alien unintended in any way you know it felt like the the chaos of rock and roll and i thrived on that when things went wrong cut to gas and i'd have to do something 
and I'm brilliant. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm more than happy. As you, as you can tell, I, I can talk. <laughs> now, over on social media, don't forget, you can find our British Broadcasting Century page on Facebook and our brand new British Broadcasting Century group. Do join both. On the group, folks are sharing pictures, snippets and finding out about radio's golden age. One last clarification for this Loose Ends episode. The first four employees of the BBC. I mentioned last episode in the Christmas special that the spark for me, what really got me enthused about the whole broadcasting story to begin with, was hearing that the BBC started with four employees, but 30,000 listeners. And I wanted to know the story of those four employees. But who were those four? Well, like the tale of the first comedian, it's not as simple as you'd hope. Now, apologies, this may get name heavy fairly quickly. So feel free to either skip past it if it's too geeky or if it's not geeky enough. Do take notes if you want to discover who were the first employees of the BBC. Burroughs is definitely in the first four. He's the first voice, the first director of programmes. Arthur Burroughs is 100% one of the first four BBC staff members. But the others... Well, originally I thought of those employees as the first four jobs advertised. In other words, Director of Programmes, Arthur Burroughs. Secretary, Major P.F. Anderson. General Manager, John Reith. Chief Engineer, eventually Peter Eckersley, though actually he's not employed until February. And then again, in Burroughs' 1924 book, he says, The initial appointments to HQ staff were General Manager, John Reith. Secretary, Major P.F. Anderson. Cecil Lewis, Deputy Director of Programmes. Stanton Jeffries, London Station Director, then Musical Director. Oh, and himself, Arthur Burroughs. So that's five. Plus, I read that... Rex Palmer, announcer and successor to Stanton Jeffries as London Station Director. Rex Palmer was described in 1929's Evening News as... One of the original five members of the BBC. Except that Burroughs has Reith, Anderson, Lewis, Jeffries and himself Burroughs as the first five. But that Evening News article also says Rex Palmer was the first announcer, when actually I think Burroughs was, and the first director of 2LO, well, that was Stanton Jeffries, I think. And the article says he was the first person to book artists, again, Burroughs, surely, although arguably by the time the BBC started, maybe it was Rex Palmer. And that Rex Palmer was the first BBC employee to be hired by Reith in November 1922. So says the article, even though Reith wasn't actually interviewed for the job until December. So I don't know how he can employ people in November. So evening news, I have questions. And elsewhere, I've heard that Rex Palmer was the sixth staff member. But also elsewhere, I've read that the sixth was actually Reith hiring Isabel Shields as personal secretary to Mr. Reith. Because he didn't like Major Anderson. So that's seven-ish of the first employees. But I'm also reading at the minute the 1938 Reith biography by Gary Allegan, and he sees the first four employees rather differently. He refers to what Reith called, please forgive any insensitivity in the historical quote, the four BBC Aboriginals, who were there at the very start, before any appointments were even made. When the BBC came into being, November the 14th, 1922, some were with the old companies who automatically transferred. Arthur Barrows and Stanton Jeffries were running two alo employed by Marconi's before they were appointed BBC Director of Programmes and Musical Director. Cecil Lewis was running 2ZY Manchester, employed by Metrovic, before he was appointed Deputy Director of Programmes. Percy Edgar was running 5IT Birmingham, employed by Western Electric. For immediate staff members when the BBC came into being. Now, I realise, apologies, I've gone down the rabbit hole on this. Perhaps it's needless detail. 
but surely a big beast like the BBC deserves knowing who its founding fathers were. I mean, Mount Rushmore had four faces on. Who are the BBCs? So, compiling all this together, I think the first employees... Burroughs, Jeffries, Anderson the Secretary, Reef the Big Boss, who didn't start till Christmas, Lewis in Manchester in November, who then came to London as Deputy Director of Programmes in December, Percy Edgar in Birmingham, Rex Palmer, Isabel Shields, Peter Eckersley, but probably after a good few others were hired in January. That's nine-ish. And of those, here is Cecil Lewis. Reduce the staff of the BBC to four people today and say, put on a programme, you see. What happens? Nobody knows what to do. You know, you finish uh, sorting through the letters at five o'clock and you clap on your hat and run down the road to get to the studio, which is in the Gaiety Theatre, get in the lift and go up, open the mic, and you're in the children's hour. What do you do? You improvise. Nobody knows what to do, you know. So we make it all up. Speaking of Cecil Lewis and Percy Edgar, as I was puzzling this out on our Facebook page a while ago, listener Alan Pemberton emailed, thank you, Alan, he said, you probably read Cecil A. Lewis's 1924 book, Broadcasting From Within. I've downloaded it from a certain link that I'll put in the show notes, Lewis agrees with Arthur Burroughs about the first five employees and has this to say about Percy Edgar. I cannot remember if Percy Edgar arrived at Birmingham before the BBC took it on or after, but it does not matter. Now, that email, in fact, Alan, thank you, led me to look into Percy Edgar and that helped me discover that his grandson, David Edgar, is a playwright that I was familiar with, so I dropped David a line and that's how we've got David Edgar on this podcast in a few episodes time with a special reading his grandfather's memoirs. All thanks to your email, Alan Pemberton. So if you think about getting in touch with the podcast, please do, because you never know what it will prompt. So that's Percy Edgar, second voice of the BBC, as heard through his grandson. That memoir will be on a special episode in a couple of months' time. Before that, we've got another grandson of a pioneer offering us an exclusive. David Jervis is grandson to Captain Henry J. Round, and David has unearthed a recording of Captain Round's acceptance speech at a ceremony in his honour. It's a huge recording. It's a long one. We will have the only publicly available copy of it right here next time in the first of our specials. So, purists, completists, archivists, history buffs, you will not want to miss it. After that, we've got a parliamentary reconstruction we're planning, Percy Edgar's memoirs, possibly a special on Peter Eckersley, and then hopefully soon after that, I will have used that time to do enough research to bring you season two of the origin story of British broadcasting. It'll be the first year of the BBC, 1923. But to do that, I need to buy myself some time, and I buy that by... First of all, saying bye. Thank you to Gareth Jones for joining us on this podcast. You seem to have got into podcasting ahead of most, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, early adopter, pioneer. Only realised fairly recently I was a, a genuine podcast pioneer. And again, I can claim very little, little responsibility for that. It was my great ally, Zog, uh, a journalist, uh, a magazine editor called... Paul Ierson, that's his real name, but we've always called him Zog. 2005, when my 16-year tenure on How To had ended, I was casting around for what to do next. I was doing some motorsport television at the time, but Zog was doing a podcast about poker at the time called the uh, poker diagram podcast. And he came here, this room I'm in right now one day and, and said to me, you've got to make a podcast. You should call it Gareth Jones on speed. It should be about cars. And my partner, Violet said, great, do that. Do it. Podcasting is the new thing. I said, 
lots of podcasts. Really didn't know in 2005. So we started making content. We made a couple of programs, worked out how to write an RSS feed and how to upload programs to my um, web server. And I think the first show got something like 300 listeners. And then the subscriber base built and built and built until, you know, we had something like 50,000 a few years ago, which was a huge number. So, yeah, it reminded me the early days of podcasting is the early days of ready control model aircraft. You know, it was a very similar process of having to work it out from first principles. There was not a kit of parts available then. And I've kept it going. Violet will tell you that one thing I, I'm very good at is sort of loyalty and sustaining and just keeping something going. How to I did for 16 years. Gareth Jones on Speed, my car podcast, I've now done for 15 years. You know, I, I, I tend to stay with things until other people are fed up of them, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and uh, your website, garethjones.tv. Find the other clips there. And your podcast, Gareth Jones on Speed. Everyone should listen to that if they don't listen already, but clearly everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a reasonable audience. And one other thing, if you want to see any of the video of this stuff I've made over the years, you can go to uh, my YouTube channel as well, youtube.com forward slash Gareth Jones TV. But thank you, Paul, for the opportunity. Thank you for the great plug. You're a kind and generous man. Good luck with your show. Thank you much indeed. Thank you for listening and for sharing, if you would, and rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever you found this. Those reviews really do help people see them, they try the podcast, and more people jump on board, and they might get in touch and prompt some historical findings that we didn't know about before. If you especially enjoy us, please do consider patreon.com slash paulcarenza or paypal.me slash paulcarenza. There are two ways you can support us with a tip. Thank you to those who do and those who have. You are superstars and you keep us in books and web hosting. I hope this episode has helped tie up a few loose ends. The books that have been particularly helpful in doing so have been Gary Allegan's book, John Reith, Leslie Bailey's BBC Scrapbooks, and Dennis Gifford's 50 Years of Radio Comedy. And that is why I need to read a lot between now and season two to make sure I know all the facts before we start telling you the story of the BBC's first year of broadcasting. Back next month with that Captain Round special. And thank you for your company on season one of... The British Broadcasting Century, presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain and or used with kind permission of the BBC and or finding some other rights owners in the long distant past is nigh on impossible. If you own a clip and don't want us to use it, do say. If you own a clip that we don't have and you do want us to use it, do get in touch. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for The Specials on the British Broadcasting Century.